this is uh, such a special day for so many reasons, and I'll tell an embarrassing story just so we can continue to get to know each other a little bit. Um, so we have three kids. Jen and I have three kids. They're 13, 12, and 9. And uh, several years ago, we, Easter Sunday, we were walking to church, and Easter Sunday a few years ago happened to also be um, the final round Sunday of the Masters, which in our house is a big deal. And we were going into church and Easter Sunday and everything, and uh, Jen gets our kids checked in. And in their, um, in their small groups, uh, the small group teacher starts out, um, this is all told to me later on by the small group leader who's reporting to me, uh, that my 13-year-old, who was like, I think about nine at the time, my son, she starts the class and she says, um, now, it's Easter Sunday, and we want to start here by just, you know, talking about why is today so important. Can anyone tell me in the class why today is so important? And Jackson Payne, hand raised high, and she calls him, Jackson, go ahead and tell everybody why today is so important, Easter Sunday. And he said, it's the Masters. It's the Masters. That's why today's so important. But anyway, very embarrassing uh, moment, but important for us, and hopefully you're recording and We'll get you home to that. But today is also um, Palm Sunday, which the message is going to really center on and want to encourage you to, if you have your scriptures, to go ahead and open to, to Matthew chapter 21. That's the passage we're going to be in today. And we'll be looking at the first 19 verses or so in Matthew chapter 21. And while you're turning there, let me just um, also acknowledge that every single week, uh, in our leadership team meeting, we meet for about two and a half, three hours as a leadership team, uh, campus pastors and our central team together. Ryan is a part of that, your campus pastor. And so we hear stories about everything that's happening here at the Matthews East Campus and keep up to date with you. And I know one of the questions that um, typically comes up in our meetings and, and that Ryan lets us know about to be praying about and to understand is that I know many of you have been asking questions or have questions about what's going to happen to the Matthews East Campus. I mean, now that we uh, combined our churches together, that we merged and we're New City, and we have two Matthews campuses. What's going to happen to this campus? There's a lease that's coming due on this campus next summer. We have capacity issues with kids. And I just want to acknowledge that while we're here, that we're talking about that and we're praying about it. But I also want to say to you that no decisions have been made about that. And so just want you to know that and really want um, to just invite you along in the journey as we pray together about what the Lord has for us. We really truly believe that God called us to join our churches together and that he's doing an incredible work as one church now but also um, that we have to prayerfully consider what that means for us going forward. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. We're praying and we're trying to consider together as leaders and just wanna invite you into that journey. And I also wanna say to you that when we get clarity on that and what that means, we'll talk about it. We'll just have an open conversation about what that looks like, but we, we don't know right now. So we'd just love for you to, to, to pray about that. Is that fair? Um, just want to say that and acknowledge it. And it, it, it comes up almost every week in our leadership meetings as we talk about it and we pray about it. And we just want you to know that. And I wanted you to hear that from me just in person that we haven't made a decision about this or what that looks like. And we're really just seeking the Lord on that and would love for you to, to do that with us, okay? All right, Matthew chapter 21. Before we jump into it, let me, let me start this way by saying that there are three times in the Gospels recorded that we read that Jesus cried. Uh, that may have happened more often, but there's only three times in the gospel that we read that Jesus wept, that he cried. The first one is for his friend Lazarus. The shortest verse in the Bible, if you want to memorize a verse today, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And we, we get a feel for the, the humanity of Jesus 
Of course, he was fully God and fully man, but we see uh, just the incarnate Christ and, and his humanity and crying at the loss of his friend. Even though he would be resurrected again, he still experiences loss. He weeps over the loss of his friend. The second occurrence happens today, Palm Sunday. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the Bible says that he weeps over the city that he cries over Jerusalem, and specifically he cries over Jerusalem's consistent what? Rejection of him. Um, so he's crying over a whole people group, over a city. And we should do the same, by the way. We should weep and cry over our city, have a burden and a heart for our city, for people who are far from God and need to come into a saving relationship through Jesus. The third time, you'll remember, it also occurred this week, Passion Week, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus considered the price, the ultimate price that he was going to pay for your sin, for my sin, past, present, and future on the cross, he cried. He cried out to the Father. So over his friend, over the city, and over the price of sin, Jesus cries. And two out of these three happen on what's known as Passion Week, the week that we're entering into. The word passion comes from a Latin word that has a double meaning. It means the willingness to suffer and the, the willingness or desire to seek and save that which was lost in Jesus' case. So the desire, a strong desire, and a willingness, those two things really encapsulate what the word passion means. And in Jesus' case, it meant a strong desire to seek and to save each of you, that which was lost and far from God, never to be reconciled on our own. Only by God can we come into a right relationship with God the Father through Jesus so Jesus' strong desire to seek and save each of us, but also, here's the second part of it, don't miss it. Passion also means his willingness to suffer. It's one thing to desire it, it's another thing to be willing to suffer for it. And that combination, that, that desire, that seeking and saving, that which was lost to each of us as people, but his willingness to suffer is what encapsulates the meaning of passion, this week that we enter into. Again, our scripture today is Matthew 21. It's, it's the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's the only scene recorded in the Bible where Jesus actually plans and promotes a public demonstration. You may say, is that true? Go back and look. It's the only time where he plans it and he actively promotes a public demonstration about who he is. All throughout the Gospels, we read Jesus cautioning people not to tell others who he is. Don't tell other people about my identity. Don't tell other people about what's been done for you. He avoids many times public places. In fact, most of Jesus' ministry, you'll remember in the Gospels, is done outside of major cities and back row places where he stayed primarily behind the scenes. But everything changes in this story in Matthew 21. It's Jesus enters into Jerusalem in a very public way. And he ushers in the most important week in history that we're celebrating this week. The most important week in our histories because on this week, Jesus paid fully the price for our sins, past, present, and future. That's what Passion Week is. And it was, it was planned and it was promoted by Jesus for us to see and to understand. And here's, here's the bottom line. Here's what I want you to take away from the message more than anything else, okay? Here's the bottom line. Jesus' entrance, the story that we're talking about today, Jesus' entrance made a way for our eternity. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem this week made a way for our entrance into eternity through a relationship with God. This is the triumphal entry. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 21. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses to start us. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. Again, he's not hiding. The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The story begins here, the entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem with the fulfillment of prophecy. And it's important to note that the entrance of Jesus, the the Palm Sunday entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem is recorded in all, all four Gospels. We're looking at Matthew's account. Matthew wrote to a primarily Jewish audience. He wants to convey and convince his Jewish brothers and sisters that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So it begins here, Jesus' triumphal entry, with a fulfillment of prophecy that they would have known. And it answers the question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? So let's look first at verses 1 through 7, a a prophecy fulfilled. And if you're taking notes, again, you can pull it up on the app. All of them are preloaded there, and the scripture's preloaded, or you can can write it down in your journal. Jesus sends two disciples ahead and tells them what they're going to find. You're going to find a donkey, and you're going to find a colt. You're gonna you're gonna find a foal. So that was that was the donkey. That was her um, that was her um, donkey son, if you will, little baby, a foal. Uh, one sermon I was preaching on this years ago, and I accidentally said foul instead of foal, and nobody said anything until afterwards. Someone up, came up and said, "I never knew that that Jesus rode a, a chicken into the city. Um, <laughs> that wasn't true. He rode a foal. It was a." It was an unbroken colt, if you will. And Matthew's account is the only one that mentions these two animals, that there's not only the mama, but also the baby. And Jesus rides in on the baby, the colt, which was unbroken. And, and this is an incredible, you, you could miss this, right? But um, because it was unbroken, that meant that people couldn't ride him. But Jesus does. And, and this is a subtle little sign to the crowd of who Jesus really is, that he had dominion over the sheep and the the oxen and all the animals that he had created. And the fact that Jesus was able to ride this unbroken foal is yet another evidence of who he is, answering that question for Matthew's audience. And Matthew, or, uh, yeah, Matthew uh, quotes Zechariah 9.9. That's, if, you, if you're taking notes, uh, that's the prophecy that's fulfilled here. Zechariah 9, verse 9. And Matthew 21, verse 5, Matthew quotes that in here so they'll know that this is a prophecy of the Messiah that is to come. He'll ride humbly into the city on a colt. So think about it this way. The king of kings, right? The king of kings, Jesus, who was born in a stable in a backwoods broken a hidden place, enters into the king city, Jerusalem, on a donkey. <laughs> Conquering kings would normally enter into cities that they had conquered on chariots and, and stallions, this visible display of their power. But Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, on a colt, a royal animal of Jewish monarchs. 
It's important to note that the next time that Israel will see her king, it will be Revelation 19 and this conquering king of kings who will come again. This was a prophecy that most of the audience, the crowd that was gathered that day, would have understood and known. And again, Matthew wants his audience to know that Jesus, this Jesus, this prophet from Galilee, is the one, the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come to seek and to save that which was lost. But also, not only the prophecy being fulfilled that's recorded here in Jesus' entrance, but also the crowd's response. This is important for us to notice today on Palm Sunday. There's a crowd that's celebrating, and this gives an understanding about who Jesus really is. Keep in mind, this is the beginning of Passover week, right? Uh, The time where Jews would celebrate God's passing over them, his judgment passing over them in Egypt. And they're celebrating that again. And so the, the city would swell with numbers of three different types of people that the crowd included that day. It would be Jews, of course, who were living in Jerusalem, But it would also be Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem, who were part of the diaspora, who had come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So an incredible amount of people had been gathered in the city on this week, Passover week, as Jesus makes his entrance into the city. But also a third group of people, not only Jews inside the city and Jews who were outside the city who would come to celebrate Passover, but there's just a bunch of looky-loos as well. There's a bunch of people who were just watching this whole scene. And a a big reason why these people had gathered who were were not Jews but were just on the scene to look and see what was going on is because um, they had seen a man who was raised from the dead, Lazarus. So chronologically, the raising of Lazarus happened right before the entrance into Jerusalem. So there's a whole group of people that saw a dead man raised to life. And when that happens, you you just notice that. And you follow that person. You just say, I don't, I don't even know who this person fully is, but I'm with them. Because they just raised a dead man back to life. So you have Jews who are in Jerusalem who are part of the crowd. You have Jews who are part of the diaspora who are there celebrating Passover. And you have these looky-loos who have seen Lazarus raised from the dead. And they just want to see what is going to happen next and who is this Jesus. And the crowd begins, that group of people, the crowd begins to celebrate in a distinctive way. Look at the scripture with me, Matthew chapter 21. They begin to celebrate in a distinctive way. First of all, they, the, the Bible tells us that they take off their cloaks and they place their cloaks in front of Jesus as he walks into the city on this colt. And that was a, a symbol, it was a sign of submission. So that may seem weird to us that you would take your jacket off and put it in front of someone. But what they were symbolizing through this act is that they were submitting to his authority, to his leadership, that he truly is the Lord. He is the the promised Messiah. So this is a, again, this is another revelation to people who are wondering, who is Jesus? Which is the, the biggest question that someone can ask and answer in their life, even today. Who is Jesus? Well, it's a, he is the one that we submit to, his authority and his lordship. And we're taking our cloaks off and we're putting it in front of Jesus as a sign of that. But here's the second thing. If you grew up in church, maybe you grew up on Palm Sunday waving palm branches and learning about that and what it meant. Palm branches were a form of nationalism. It was a, 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 a point of pride for Jews. It was a, a symbol of their pride in their country. And so they're putting these palm branches down in front of Jesus because they're interpreting the Messiah, and they always had, as the one who would come and, and conquer and, and, in this instance, kick out the Romans, and, and the Jews would be back into power again. 
And so they're putting these palm branches down as a, as a sign and the symbol of Jewish nationalism and their pride in their country. And they're saying, our Messiah has come. Our, our conqueror has come. And in their minds, they're thinking like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's going to kick out all the Romans and we're going to be back in charge again. And that was a sign, a symbol, again, of this fulfillment of prophecy and who Jesus was. But thirdly, they said something, didn't they? They did two things. They took their cloaks off and put it in front of Jesus as he walked into the city as a sign of submission. They cut palm branches as a sign of nationalism and pride in their conquering Lord and King, who is now Jesus, that they believed him to be. And then here's the third thing. They began to, to say something. What is it? Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David, which is very important, meaning out of the line of David, out of the lineage of David was going to come our Messiah, and this is him, Jesus. Hosanna, and the word Hosanna in the Hebrew means save us, save us, save us. They're celebrating Jesus in these three distinctive ways, and they're announcing his arrival, and watch this, Jesus is allowing them to announce his arrival for him. Jesus doesn't have a megaphone saying, I'm here, I'm here. The crowd is announcing Jesus for him. He, they're paving the way. They're, they're, they're showing other people by these incredibly powerful symbols and their words, Hosanna, save us, save us, who Jesus really is. Now, now think about this, because hopefully all of us are on that scene, this Palm Sunday. We're right there on the road watching Jesus come to Jerusalem. Let's put ourselves there in our mind's eye, but also think about this because this is incredible. As people are preparing their lambs for the sacrifice, for the Passover, as they're preparing all their various sacrifices to celebrate Passover, they had no idea, they had no idea that the very lamb of God was entering into their city. The very lamb of God who would take away all sins, past, present, and future. And that their sacrifices wouldn't be necessary anymore because his sacrifice, his atonement was gonna be a once and for all sacrifice. This is an important moment for us to, to, to understand in our own lives because oftentimes, right, in fact, most of the time, when we're busy covering up our sins, trying to cover our brokenness and the ways that we disappoint other people and the way that we disappoint God, when we're busy covering up our brokenness, God is riding into our lives. The grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God is coming towards us when we're running away. Paul says it this way, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you were pushing God away, when you were trying to cover sins on your own, when you were trying to make it on your own, God rode into your life. Mercy came towards you. Love came towards you. And in this instance, came riding into town to change everything. And the key verse here, right, about who Jesus is and displaying that for the crowd and for us to see now, the key verse is found in verse 10. Matthew chapter 21. Look at it with me. When he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was what? Stirred up. And they said to one another, who is this? Now, this should be true for us today as well. As we live out Jesus in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, as we live out Jesus in our own homes, it, could, it should cause people to say and ask the question out loud and to themselves, who is Jesus? Why are these people doing this? Why are they living this way? Who is Jesus? The whole city, guys, should be stirred up because Christians live in this city. 
as we live out the gospel in front of people, as we uh, speak godly words and words of life, as we, as we live in a way that pleases the Lord, as we live in community and fellowship with one another, people who are not Christ's followers should look at that and say, what is this? Who is Jesus? And why are these people living the way that they do? The whole city should be stirred up because of Jesus. And it certainly is on this day. All of Jerusalem is stirred up. And if you followed along in Matthew, if you've ever read the whole gospel for yourself, this probably harkens you back to chapter 2 when Jesus was born. When Jesus was born in the Magi visit, Herod is frustrated. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it says that the whole city, because of Jesus' birth and everything that was going on, do you remember what it says? The whole city was what? Stirred up. And here we are again. Fast forward all of these years towards the end of Jesus' life. And in the same way when he was born, the news of his birth stirred up the city. And the same way now his entrance stirs up the whole city. May that be true in our city as well. May the way we lift up Jesus, high and lifted up, may it stir our whole city. May people be shaken out of their slumber. And may they ask the most important question that any of us can ever ask or answer. Who is Jesus? That's what they're asking. Who is this? What does this all mean? And specifically, what does it mean in my life, right? What does it mean in your life? Who is Jesus? What does he mean to me? But crowds can be fickle, can't they? Anybody with me? Crowds can be fickle. People in your life can be fickle. In fact, People make lousy gods. You make a lousy God, and so do the people in your life. I've said before, but it's worth saying again, the throne of God isn't a two-seater. You're not up there with him. God alone belongs on his throne. He's, he is the author of life, and he sees our hearts perfectly. Other people can't. And even as we look at this story, we're reminded of that truth that people make lousy gods and people are fickle because this same crowd that's celebrating Jesus by taking off their cloaks and saying we submit to you by cutting palm branches and laying them in front of them as a sign of national pride of, 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 of his lordship and, and that the Messiah has come, the same group that is shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, the son of David. This, the same group that is doing all of this, not three days later, is, is a part of the group that's shouting, crucify, 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 give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. The opinions of people can go up and down. Jesus' mission never changes. And this public display, this, this entrance of Jesus, displaying his identity and his popularity, it forces the Jewish leaders' hands. They've already been on Jesus They've already been pushing against him, but this is the final straw, if you will. This display was the final excuse they needed to bring Rome in and to take care of Jesus. And that part of the story will continue later on this week. It's interesting because the Sadducees, we've been learning about that as we've journeyed through Acts together as a church. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel. It was made up of 70 men and the high priest, which is Caiaphas. And, and the ruling party of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, is a group known as the Sadducees. They're the most powerful upper crust, if you will, group on the Sanhedrin. 
And the Sadducees always put the high priest into place. It was always the Sadducee that became the high priest. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in any of the scriptures other than the Torah. But also, some of you may know this about the Sadducees, they're incredibly political. And they had an alliance with Rome. And their agreement, their alliance with Rome was basically this. If you'll leave Jerusalem alone, if you'll leave our holy city alone and let us govern it and take care of the people and keep them at peace and keep them ordered and subjugated under our rule and law, if you'll leave them alone, then we'll take care of the city and you won't have any problems here. It will always be at peace. Now, guess what's happening here and in many other instances? People are being stirred up. Crowds are gathering together, public demonstrations. And the Sadducees are nervous because they're what? They're losing control. All of religiosity is based on control. And they're losing control of people. And they're nervous. And this is the final straw, this entrance into Jerusalem where people are screaming out, Hosanna, save us. And again, it tips their hand, and the rest of the week's events follow after this. But make no mistake and keep this in mind. Jesus' entrance that we're reading about today in Matthew 21 it was making a way for your eternity. Every single thing that's recorded here, everything that we're talking about today was all a part of Jesus making a way for you and me to be in right relationship with God again. Now, the second part of Jesus' entrance that we're looking at today is not about answering the question, who is Jesus? That's, that's the first part, the first 11 verses, the fulfillment of prophecy, the reaction of the crowd, all point to who Jesus is. But the second part of our text today is really about Jesus making some significant statements. He, he um, performs two significant acts here that I want to look at. They're acts of judgment, if you will. And they're judgment against Israel and the religious institution. They're actions that point to something new. Revelation 21, from the throne of God, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. A great word. Not improved not reformed, completely new. God is doing a new thing. And that begins and ends with the work of Jesus. Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God is making all things new, namely us as people. And Jesus' entrance and then these judgments point to the fact that something new is happening. Everyone watch this. Something new is happening. And these judgments that are acted upon by Jesus point to this new thing. So let's read the rest of the text. Verses 12 through 19, Matthew 21. After Jesus enters in, he goes to the temple. And the scripture says here in verse 12 that he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. In the morning, verse 18, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered 
at once. Beginning in verse 12, Jesus goes into the temple, the heart of Judaism, ground zero, if you will, for the religious institution of the day. And he begins speaking and acting upon a judgment against the religious institution of that day, namely against the money changers and those who sold there in the temple. And he brings them back to Isaiah 57, verse uh, 56, verse 7, I should say, where uh, the prophet says that God's house shall be a house of, of prayer. And so Jesus quotes that and he says, you know that my house the temple should be a place of, of prayer. And you've turned it into a place where people are being extorted into a, a den of, of robbers, if you will. So what's happening here, just really quickly. So Passover week, people are preparing their sacrifices. Uh, the, the, the city has swelled with all kinds of different people from all over. And the, the temple is the center of that. And Jesus goes right there. And he begins to turn over tables and he begins to speak judgment towards uh, money changers and people who are selling in the temple. And he, and he quotes Isaiah 56. And what's happening specifically in that day is that people would come in and they would uh, buy their sacrifice. They would buy a pigeon or an animal or something to sacrifice for a to atone for their sins. But, but it's, it's richer than that because you couldn't just come in with your currency and buy a sacrifice from the temple. So let's say that we were there and we had our own currency and you pulled out your wallets, right? And you open it up, which I showed the first service, I have nothing. I remember I said I have three kids, so I have no money in my wallet today. But if you had money, you would come to the temple, you would take your money out, your currency, and you would go to buy something, but you couldn't use your money. Your money is considered unclean. You had to have temple money. Did you know that the temple had its own currency? Oh, yes. The religious institution had their own money. And here's how it worked. You would give your money to the temple, and the temple would give you back temple money that you could then use temple money to buy your sacrifice. But guess what would happen when you would give your currency, your money, to get temple money? Big interest rates, okay? So Wells Fargo, Bank of America, no, nobody had anything on the temple. They would, they would have huge interest rates so that when you gave your money, they were getting a lot more than you were getting in return, and you couldn't use that money anywhere else. But they had the power because you needed the temple money to buy your sacrifice. And eternal damnation has a way of motivating people. So people would give money so they could get their sacrifice, so they could cover their sins. This is so important for what's getting ready to happen this Passion Week because Jesus is ultimately headed to the cross. And all of this sacrificial system will be put back in its place and null. But Jesus is giving a sign. He's giving a, a word of judgment against that sacrificial system because he's getting ready to fulfill it all through his life and through his sacrifice. And then he says, really quickly, he says, my house, my temple is going to be a house of prayer. Very, very important word that he gives here because prayer, pure and simple, is dependence. That's what prayer is. Prayer is dependence on God. When you pray, you're saying, you're God and I'm not. That's what prayer does. It puts us in right posture with God. And Jesus says that's what the temple should be. It should be a, a place of dependence on God and God alone. And you've made it in something that, that people are dependent on you in a religious institution. And then specifically here, I love this, lame people, blind people are brought to Jesus. Broken people are, bought, are brought to Jesus in the temple. That's so important because broken people physically oftentimes were not allowed to come into the temple their brokenness prohibited them from access into the temple. And now broken people are being brought to the temple, to Jesus. And we're seeing something very important happen here. We're broke. Everyone watch this. We're broken people, just like us, 
physically and spiritually and emotionally broken people are intersecting with Jesus and the power of God. And that's what Jesus says should happen. When people come into the presence of God, their brokenness should intersect with his forgiveness, with his mercy, with his love. People should be healed and restored and renewed because of that. And that's exactly what happens here in the text. But what's the religious institution's response to these healings and this word that Jesus is giving? They are what? They're indignant. You know you're on the wrong side when you're seeing people freed up from their brokenness, healed from their infirmities and their sicknesses, and you're on the wrong side. You're booing that. You don't want people to be healed. You don't want people to be restored because it's challenging you. And that's the posture and position that the religious people find themselves in. But moreover, this act took place in the court of the Gentiles. So within the temple, there was a specific court for Gentiles, for non-Jews, that they could come and observe what happened in the temple so that they could see the presence of God. So just to put the cherry on the top, the icing on the cake, not only is the religious institution um, perverting all that they were supposed to do, not only are they taking advantage of people, but they're doing it in the court of the Gentiles where people who were non-Jews were supposed to be able to see the presence of God. This is such an important word for us as a church, I think. We've got to be, as Paul said, wise unto outsiders. We worship God in spirit and truth when we don't apologize for that. But we're also wise under outsiders. And we allow people to come and observe and see what we're doing without judgment. We allow a safe place for people to hear a dangerous message, if you will. And that's what Jesus is so frustrated with and judging. That not only have you messed up this whole thing, but you've done it in a place where outsiders are supposed to see what we have. A relationship with God. But here's the second act, really quickly. Verses 18 and 19. I'm out of time. Can I have a couple more minutes? A couple more, we're done. Um, Jesus curses the fig tree. So he goes into Bethany, he lodges, he comes back into the city a second time. And on his way, his entrance into the city, he curses the fig tree. And I want to teach this because I think it's really important. That when Jesus curses the fig tree, this is an important symbol of what he is wanting to do through his life and his sacrifice. Because the fig tree represented the nation of Israel itself. That was one of their their symbols of of who they were. So fig trees appeared all over the place in Israel because it was a symbol of national pride. And when leaves were present on the fig tree, as we read here in verses 18 and 19, when leaves were present, what else was supposed to be present? Fruit. So Jesus is hungry and he goes over to the tree, this fig tree that was a symbol of Israel, and it's full of leaves. So he thinks, "I'm, I'm gonna get fruit and eat from it, but there's what? There's no fruit. And this becomes an incredible symbol of Israel. You look good on the outside, your religiosity, but there's nothing on the inside. You've lost your heart. There's nothing of substance there. It's all appearance. It's all veneer, which is what religiosity oftentimes turns into. This veneer of an appearance of godliness, but there's nothing in your heart following God. And then he curses the tree, and the tree withers right there in front of them. And we're left to inference this, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave the teaching with this. There, there's another fig tree that's mentioned in the Bible that plays a very, very prominent role in our history, our understanding of, of Christianity, of, of creation and the fall and redemption and eventually restoration, the, the narrative of God, if you will. It happens all the way back in the fall in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin, when brokenness enters into the world, what's their first response? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Immediately, the Bible says, 
they cover themselves with what? Fig leaves. Now, we don't know, but a lot of rabbis teach that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was actually a fig tree. We don't know that, but we're left to inference it because the Bible says that immediately they covered themselves. So they go to their first tree, which was probably the tree that they took the fruit from, which many rabbis and Jewish scholars think is a fig tree. Again, we're left to inference, but this is so powerful based on what we're reading today because Jesus is on his way to the cross. Jesus is on his way to an ultimate sacrifice, past, present, and future for all mankind. And we're, we're hearkened all the way back to where brokenness began, where sin entered into the world. So don't miss this. On the way to Jesus, walking into Jerusalem on his way to another tree, he curses the fig tree that brought brokenness and sin into the world. And ultimately, the tree that he would hang on would conquer sin and death forever. Isn't that amazing? Talk about making an entrance. What an entrance Jesus made. And here's the bottom line. Don't forget it. Jesus' entrance, the narrative that we're looking at today, Matthew 21, Jesus' entrance made a way for our eternity. It made a way for you. It made a way for me to be in right relationship with God. To God alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your passion for each and every one of us. For your intense desire and your willingness to suffer for each of us. We're reminded of that acutely on this week. So would you prepare our hearts as we enter into this Passion Week, as we remember and we celebrate your perfect sacrifice for us, where you made a way for each of us to have a relationship with you. We thank you for the word today and we pray that it would not return void in our lives. Would you give us the wisdom to know what you're asking us to do with it and the faith to take a step towards you because of it? In Jesus' name, amen.